Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back-to-back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with left field investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeVest.com to get started today. To me, who I'm making a bet on is slightly more important than the property itself, with the property being a very close second. And in order to really get the full assessment, you've got to do a gut check. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Joe Williams, co-founder of Keller Williams, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hello, left fielders. This is part two of our holiday treat for our listeners. Listen in to hear the mound visit with Jeremy Roll from our 2023 meetup in the left field. As always, Jeremy shares nuggets of wisdom that will help every LP investor in 2024 and beyond. Enjoy and happy new year. Okay, so now we'll open it up to questions from the audience. I think I see Chad back there with a mic. I think Ryan will walk around. I can hit the front row. Um, if you have questions for Jeremy, now's the time. Just raise your hand and we will uh, throw the mic at you. There's one back there, Dan. Is that back there behind you, Chad? Yes, yes. Jeremy, to your point on uh, saying if you hand over the keys, I won't get a lawyer. For us that don't have your maybe name brand or knowledge to potentially call out that bluff, what do we have? I mean, for some operators where the primary uh, GP has maybe left the country, took down their LinkedIn, uh, I won't mention names, but there is one I'm dealing with. Uh, what recourse do you have? And generally, if you say that, do you feel there's enough, uh, almost like a layoff situation, if you're one of the first LPs that get in, you know, you might get paid at least your principal back. Or secondly, do you look for the other LPs and try to do the equivalent of a mini class action? Um, I am truly the wrong person to answer that for two reasons. One is I've been in one foreclosure all this time 
And actually, it was in 2012, and it wasn't even because of the 2008 down. It was one of those 1% stories that I actually love. It's, it's really interesting. And that sponsor actually transferred us from that property to another property they own without any other investors. So I've never actually been in a foreclosure with a loss. Um, so that's number one. So I haven't been through the process. Number two is I tend to be, um, I'm from Canada. So I tend to be much more laid back about legal stuff. And my mind would be, you know, assuming I put a lot of small things, uh, small pieces across a lot of deals, which I do, for me, I'd rather just take the write-off, especially if I've gotten some capital back from this deal through some distributions. And let's say I'm halfway there. If you take a write-off, you're actually recouping some of the capital too, right? It's not as much as you like, but you're recouping some of it. To me, I'd rather just take that right off and move on as a mindset. So I, I'm not, I've never looked into what you're talking about. I couldn't tell you what the best angle is. I'm sorry. Well, uh, a follow-up, does, uh, does that write-off come on your K-1 then? Um, I, be I believe what would have to happen is that I believe you'd have to ask your attorney if you can write that off for this year. I don't know that it comes to the K-1 or not, especially if someone's disappeared. Right. But, would. but, and I think some accounts are different than others. Like I've had actually, I invested in a few startups. I've had a couple of write-offs from that. And I've had to either prove to my accountant that the entity is closed or some type of proof that we're okay to write it off. And that like, if, it, if we write it off and then it comes back on me and or them, that we actually had a really good substantial reason to write it off this year. So we're not like writing it off too quickly and not really being fair on the taxes. But I think you have to, each account is different. All right, other questions for Jeremy? Yes, sir. So Jeremy, a lot of times, one of the criteria we're asked to look at is quality of communications from the GP. I'm just wondering, can you tell me the correlation between the frequency and the quality of the communication and the ultimate return? Are they correlated? Yeah, really good question. Um, a couple of thoughts on that, a few thoughts on that. So um, where do I start? Um, first thing I'll say is that I would strongly recommend that if you're investing with a new sponsor, that you ask for a sample report, quarterly report or monthly report to see what it includes. I don't think most people do that. And sometimes I've seen people who expected a certain amount of content or certain things to be in there and they don't see it. And there's nothing you could do about it after, especially because the operating agreement typically does not require them to specifically put anything in. Right. So, um, that's number one important message to everybody. Always ask for a sample report. Tell them you, they can redact information if they want, but just so you have a good idea, is it, is it like one page or is it 10 pages, right? Just so you know what to expect and is that gonna be okay for you? Um, the next thing I'll say about that is when I first started investing in 2002, I was working at Disney headquarters in Burbank, California, and I was used to making, I was like a middle level manager used to making very nice looking decks and presentations, right? And so when I started to get documents for sponsors that were not that buttoned up, I was immediately turned off. I'm like, these guys are professional. But what I learned over time is that I'd rather be with the best sponsor with the worst documents in terms of operator than the worst sponsor with the best documents as far as like the nicest pitch. So I don't know that there's a correlation or not because I've not run the math, but I firmly believe that I'd rather be with the best sponsor with the worst documents than the worst sponsor with the best documents. So that's about the only answer I can give you. I think we had a question here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, how do you negotiate the operating agreement with just $25,000 of your investment? Would they just walk away or you haven't yeah. walked away? Yeah, I think that it depends on the sponsor. I, it's, it's not easy to do, I'm going to tell you, and it depends on the sponsor. Obviously, an investor group will have more leverage. 
Um, there's no doubt. Um, as far as walking away, you'll have to decide. Like, um, there's a deal somebody sent to me a couple weeks ago. The cash call provision was pretty egregious. Um, that investor that sent it to me walked away from the deal because of that provision. They talked to the sponsor. It's actually a sponsor I've kind of been waiting on the sidelines to invest with for years. Who actually, I was moderating a panel a few years ago at a conference and I was like, I got to make a bet on this guy eventually. This is a really interesting person. And I've been waiting for this downturn. And now I come to see this clause and they're not going to change it. I'm just going to walk away because it's, it's a beyond the line for me. So you have to just make a decision for yourself what's beyond the line and what isn't beyond the line. Um, I wouldn't say you're ever going to find a perfect operating agreement. And even if you try to negotiate it, it still may not be perfect because you're always going to negotiate either with the sponsor and even more commonly, you're going to get pushback from the attorney who's kind of trying to protect the sponsor. So you can't expect it to be perfect, but you just have to decide if it's going to, if anything's over the line. But I would say if you have one clause that's over the line, you should walk away. You have to be 100% comfortable with it because one of the biggest challenges of this type of investing is a lack of liquidity. Right, you're locked in once you're in. And so it's very hard to sell. I believe it's actually illegal to sell your shares for the first year, which a lot of people don't know, I think, by the, per the SEC. You can't resell your shares in the event of like a family emergency three months later. You can, but it's technically illegal. Um, and so it's, it's not easy once you're locked in. Other uh, chat over here, you have a question? How do you do the background checks was the question. So I'll tell you what I do and I've done over the years. Um, that this is not necessarily feasible for some people in the room. So I use something called, um, sorry, TLO, like Tom Larry Operator, TLO.com. It's owned by TransUnion. Um, it's the, there's two challenges with it. There is a expensive monthly fee if you don't run any background checks at all. There's like a recurring membership fee. And in order to use the service, you have to have a real company. They will do a background check on you basically to approve you. So you have to be, have a real company you used to have to have an actual office address. Now with the pandemic, they allow you to have a home address. Um, I just went through the recertification. They literally make you use their app and they have GPS built into the photos and videos you're taking to, to like confirm that you're using actually your location, for example. You can have a home office, but in that home office, you can only have, in that room, there has to be a desk. There cannot be a bed or anything else. It has to have a lock with a key then you can lock it from the outside of the door, inside of the inside of the house to that room. Um, and there's other requirements. So it's, and you have to, you used to have to have a, if you're, if you were printing anything and you didn't have files in the cloud, you have to have a drawer that actually had its own lock that you had to prove had its own lock that was in that room. That was, that room was locked. So it, they take it very seriously. So it's not so easy, but that is a really good service. I, I know somebody used to be a police lieutenant in LA and he told me that he literally used that service instead of their own computers to do the first search on somebody when they booked them. So that's how thorough it is. Like if I run a background check on myself, it's like 50 pages. I'm really not exaggerating. So um, the other one that's probably as um, well known as Accurant, A-C-C-U-R-I-N-T, that's uh, LexisNexis run and it's also very expensive. You, you could do what I did when I first started, which is you can hire um, a, um, oh God, uh, a um, private investigator, okay? I hired private investigators to run background checks for me. All they do is they're certified on these services and they will run the check for you. But the one bonus you get is they will actually interpret the check for you. And if there were certain court cases, they may go do more research on those court cases to figure out what they were, which is not obvious when you read them. So 
you could hire a PI, and there's a lot of value there, but it's not cheap. Um, there's probably other services online that are cheaper that may use a similar database, but I'm not really aware of who they are. When you're talking about the monthly cost, are you talking tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars a month, just a ballpark? Yeah. So I'm grandfathered into TLO, and I'm at like a $75 a month rate, whether or not I use it. Um, and you could, that credit is credited towards running checks, though. So you could use that credit, so to speak, to run some checks. You know, and I think it's about 10 bucks a check, so it's not expensive for a check. The problem is I think if you're a new user, you're going to be starting at the one to $200, I think closer to $200 a month mark, whether or not you use it. So it is expensive. Okay, excellent. Uh, the question was, what, what's the range it might cost to use a private investigator? Yeah, I haven't hired a PI in a long time. And these background check services have become much more expensive in the last five to 10 years. They were much cheaper way back when I hired one. I used to pay about $150, I think it was. Um, and that included him doing the additional steps of the additional, you know, looking into the court cases and stuff. So I'm going to guess you're going to pay between 250 and 500 probably. I'm guessing. Excellent. Does the operator have to get permission to do a background check? No, you can do a background check on anybody without them knowing because it doesn't hit their credit. And you do not need their permission. What you do need to do, though, is the terms of service of all these background check services is that you have to have a legally permissible reason, right? You can't go do a background check on Jennifer Anderson because you want to go visit her at your house because you'll find her, you know? They will flag you. They actually flag you for stuff like that. Um, and that's, they take it very serious. Like, I think, it, I don't know if it's criminal or not, but it's very serious. So you have to follow by by the terms of service. And I think for me, I'm signed up like to prevent fraud, essentially, is what they say in a normal course of business. You have to check, every time you use it, you have to check the box that that's what you're using it for. Excellent. Other questions for Jeremy? We have about uh, 13 minutes and 42 seconds left. Not that I'm specifically timing it. Here we go. Mine's a joke, but who's your favorite actress? I thought he just said Jennifer Aniston. I, I was just confirming. See, every question that Jim has asked and everybody else has asked has been really easy. Now you're like putting me on the spot. I don't even know what to say. So uh, I actually don't have a good answer for you. I'd have to think about it. Sorry. Hi, this is Zach Hapstenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. As a busy physician, I know exactly what it's like to work long hours, make sacrifices, and put your patients first. I wanted to create more freedom for my family, but I didn't know where to turn. So in 2012, I discovered the power of multifamily real estate investments. This allowed me to create passive income and freedom and wealth for my family. In 2015, I co-founded multifamily syndication investment firm, Viking Capital. My name is Vikram Raya. I'm CEO and co-founder of Viking Capital. And we believe that multifamily investing presents a significant opportunity for investors to build sustainable wealth and achieve financial financial freedom through diversification. Learn more about all our current deal offerings at vikingmultifamily.com. Hey, Jeremy, so for the uh, real estate pullback that you see coming, what's like your most probable 
um, pullback on average around the country? 10%, 20%? What do you think? Yeah, so so it's a good question. That's going to vary by asset class. Some of them have already taken a bigger hit than others. Um, it also depends on institutional, non-institutional, location, et cetera. Um, what I will tell you is, um, let me tell you a better, what I think is an easier answer that just like, um, that applies across all the asset classes, which is, Personally, one of the things that highly frustrated me as an investor in the last few years was negative leverage, right? And l- let me just explain that just to be sure. So negative leverage, if you're not familiar with it, is the concept that if you're buying a property, that the cap rate is actually above, sorry, uh, below the interest rates and the interest rate's higher, right? And as an investor, the problem with that is you're not getting a proper risk-adjusted return. There's no risk premium. You're basically taking a lot of risk for the money that you're borrowing. In normal times, on average, historically, the typical spread, and the spread really varies, it, it actually is very volatile. So using the average is not 100% fair, but call it 150 basis points. I've looked at some analysis that have gone on for like decades, right? And so that would mean that theoretically, if you wanna be hit, hit revert to the mean, you're gonna wanna be at like a cap rate that is a, a six, an interest rate that's like four and a half, and you have that 150 basis point spread. We are nowhere near there for most situations right now. I still see some negative leverage deals getting done. I do see some positive leverage deals getting done, but they're like 10 basis points, 20 basis points, maybe at an odd exception, 40 basis points. You should also expect the class C stuff to get there quicker than the class A and B stuff. Um, but that doesn't mean that if you're focused on class B, you should compromise, you should wait. That's the word patience we were talking about before. So the number one indicator I'm looking for to get myself comfortable going back into a specific asset class is that positive leverage because that tells me that I'm getting a proper risk-adjusted return and the pricing is actually somewhat fair at that point. No, oh, another question over here. Yes, sir. So, uh, you, you said that for the ATMs, you're not worried about like sale and, and those services. Uh, what about the, the Fed now, I think it's called the, like a new way of sending money that the government implemented? Oh, you're, oh, you're talking, the Fed now. Fed now. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, that's a good point. I know that they have been testing the Fed now. They rolled it out very quietly. Um, I, you know, we're going to have to see. We're going to have to see what happens. I think that the usage of Fed now is obviously very small right now. The one thing you can obviously watch that's very easy to watch because there's official pub- published numbers is the cash in circulation. The Fed actually publishes the amount of cash in circulation every year. And, you know, it... Baffles me, but every year the number goes up. So as long as cash and circulation is going up, you should pro- it's probably a good assumption that the use of ATMs is going to continue. So we're going to have to see if that changes everything. But to your point, I will be watching that too, but right now I'm not that concerned about it. The distinguished gentleman from Michigan has a question over here. Okay. How, um, how often do you go meet with the operator in person before you make your first investment? Yeah. So I'm going to answer the most probable. I have to think about whether this, I really held to this or not, but I tell everybody like, I'm a huge proponent of um, doing a gut check before I invest with somebody. There's a lot of reading between the lines that I do. To me, who I'm making a bet on is slightly more important than the property itself with the property being a very close second. And in order to really get the full assessment, you've got to do a gut check. I've been in situations where I've literally been on a plane going cross country saying to myself, 
why am I doing this? I don't think I'm going to like this operator, but I like the deal. And by the time I was done with the gut check, I actually was like, you know what? I really should move forward with this. I, mean, I remember one distinct time. And so to me, my role is to meet with an operator in person uh, before investing with anybody. Um, what I do do a little bit differently, though, is that um, as far as background checks go, I will run a background check on somebody mostly every time I invest with them. But if it's been like three months, I probably will run it. But maybe six to 12 months after I'll rerun it because things can happen in the meantime. So it's imperative to not just run one background check, but to keep it up over time because obviously things can change. How about, I think when you're in this game for a while, you realize that the good operators are the constraint and the capital is abundant. So I'm sure you've figured out or you've learned some ways to become a value-adding limited partner. Could you share some examples of how you've helped operators and maybe that makes them want to show you deals earlier? I did catch the last part. Um, maybe that makes them want to show you deals earlier oh. or give you a little heads up? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so first of all, I would say capital is not abundant right now. Um, certainly not compared to a year and a half ago. Um, based on me talking to just a lot of sponsors is not real numbers, but just a guess. I would say the average sponsor can only raise between one third and one half of what they raised a year and a half ago. And I actually think that's gonna get much lower once we have a real proper downturn in capitulation. So that's, that's probably one of the biggest constraints that sponsors are gonna have in the next 24 months when they see really good deals that can get really frustrating for them. And I've seen it in the last downturn too. Um, so, I guess what you're referring to is the fact because I have an investor group and in my group is different than the other groups. I don't pull anybody into an LLC and it's not a primary focus of mine. I don't have any employees or whatever. I have no website or anything like it's not my primary focus. My primary focus is my own investing. Uh, I'm able to take that leverage and actually either see things earlier or whatnot. It is true. Um, it is true that I do get more leverage than an average um, group. Um, sometimes that means that I can uh, negotiate terms more easily. Sometimes it means I invest in something um, but it's not a fit for my group, but then I might know other groups that might have an interest, I might hand it off to them. One of the benefits of me having a group as well, because I consider investing of this type to be a team sport. I really, that was, that's been my belief over 20 years. It was much more difficult to do this without being a team until, you know, the internet came and public um, you know, marketing of deals and it's become a little easier now to find opportunities. But I still consider investing to be a team sport. So for me to be able to network with other groups and or other investors, it gives me a big advantage of finding deals as well because I find a lot of opportunities from other people too. Other questions? Oh, here's one in the front. Hey, Jeremy. Um, how many deals are you evaluating like over the course of a year and how long does it take you to go from start to finish? Yeah. So I don't keep a tally. Like I'm a one man show. So I don't like have a spreadsheet enter at each one I get. Cause I mean, I get multiple every week. Um, what's been really easy the last few years for me is to say no. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's either been based off a cap rate or an interest rate or a debt structure or a loan to value being very high, a lot of different factors. Um, so, um, it's a tough question for me to answer right now because it hasn't really been that active the past few years. Um, what I will tell you is that if I'm in a situation, and I've been in a situation before where I hear of a sponsor I really like, but the problem is that they have so many investors that it gets filled up in a day or two, right? I just pass. I mean, because I cannot get my arms around analyzing a deal and assuming I'm comfortable not going on site to see it and I've already met the sponsor and I want to invest with them. 
I'm not going to get comfortable investing in a deal in a day or two, unless it's a sponsor I've been with many times before and I know how they operate. And I already know what a lot of their assumptions are going to look like. So that's one thing I would caution you of it. Really don't rush into a deal. There'll be other deals. Um, if I'm going to do a full research on something that could take multiple weeks, um, especially because I like to get out to a property. If I can, it depends on timing. It depends on scheduling conflicts with sponsors and what I'm doing too, but I'm going to have to look at spreadsheets. I'm going to have to actually do my own analysis of the surrounding demographics. I'm going to have to look at their assumptions in detail um, and a lot of other things. So it, it doesn't happen in a day or two, that's for sure. Oh, Jeremy, great job. Absolutely. My name's Josh. Um, mobile home parks showed up a few times in your comments. So tomorrow you get offered a really attractive mobile home park. What does it look like from deal terms? What it, I'm Jeremy Roll right now, and I'm looking at a deal... I want to see this, 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 and this. Okay. Cash returns, IRR, yeah. hold period. So should I put aside the timing, meaning like I should ignore cap rate, but everything else? Whatever. You're saying you're, you, because you're saying we're not going to invest today? Is that yeah, what I mean, said? except okay. for a unique situation. Yeah, the first thing, the first issue I'm going to have is going to be the cap rate and the positive leverage. Um, if you can line all that up, I can give you the rest of it if you want. That's actually good. And by the way, is there a time when you would buy a mobile home park that was currently underperforming and would you use the cap rate of the future or would you use the current cap rate? Yeah. So, okay. Let me answer that second. I'll get to that for sure. Um, so let's just say for some reason that there is a great deal and it lines up from a price perspective and all that. So, um, and this is very subjective, right? So I tend to be most comfortable alone to value and not just in mobile home parks, but anything at 65 to 70%. That's historically the range I've always been comfortable in. A lot of stuff got done at 75% and higher in the last probably five to seven years, I would say, maybe even eight, nine years. Um, but I'm much more comfortable at a max of 70 to begin with. Um, for mobile home parks, they're interesting because expense ratios tend to be lower than a lot of other asset classes. So if I'm looking for cash flow, I could actually tolerate because of the expense ratio a little bit of a lower occupancy rate and still hit very comfortable cash flow rates and actually have some value at upside. So um, I would say that that minimum occupancy is probably going to be about 70 to 75%, whereas a normal asset class, my absolute minimum would probably be 80 to 85, being really comfortable. And some might prefer to be in the 90s, to give you an idea. Um, I can give you some more critical stuff about mobile home parks. So um, one of the things I try to avoid are high... Um, um, I like to have high owner-occupied percentage. So if there's a lot of rental homes, I would say beyond the absolute max 25%, I prefer to be below 10% rental homes in the park, then I can get really comfortable. It's not realistic to find a mobile home park with zero rental homes. Inevitably, if it's a big enough park, say 100 lots or more, you're typically going to have maybe a home was uh, you know, repossessed by the park or somebody left, literally just left their home. They took it over, rehabbed it. Now they're doing a rent to own, which is common. So you should expect not to find a 100%, um, you know, owner occupied park necessarily, but the highest you can get, the more comfortable I am. I tend to target uh, three or four star parks. So in mobile home park world, there's star ratings. There's not like class ABC. I would consider three and four star parks to be kind of like a B plus situation. Um, and you should watch out for three stars. Some of them aren't really three star. Then you're more like a B minus C plus type situation. Um, and I like to be personally, I, I, I avoid, um, parks that are in low cap rate areas. So for example, in Los Angeles, there are some parks that are near the beach that are just ridiculous. Like the pricing and the cap rates are crazy. Not the right fit for me. I prefer to be in the Midwest or something that's much more stable. Be very cautious with weather challenges with the mobile home parks too. Uh, hurricanes, especially.
Excellent. We have time for one more question, but uh, right here. But Jeremy, are, are you're going to be here the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. So there's plenty of time. We have a lot of time where if you wanted to ask questions, talk to Jeremy, Kevin, we're going to have one more question. Then we got to move on. So you've been a professional LP investor for almost 20 years. You left UW two jobs. This seems like sort of a basic question, but I, I, I'm curious how you went from managing your cash flow as a W-2 employee to now your full-time LP and managing allocation and, and things like that. Is that okay. Sense? Well, um, so let me, not sure I understand that exactly. Um, well, I will say this. I, I was always decent with math. I had a very easy understanding of spreadsheets and I have an MBA, which is business focused. So that's all a really good start in terms of being helpful. Um, the other thing, half of that I'll say is that unlike a lot of people, probably even in the room, I didn't go into all this with a plan to like say, okay, I'm going to invest X amount per year. And in 10 years from now, I'm going to have a certain number of investments, certain amount of cash flow and I'm out. I actually, my purpose in investing with it, in this actually was to have the W-2 and more predictability on my retirement, long-term retirement account side of my savings. And so I only left the corporate world because I had a last straw moment with the new manager when I got promoted into a new division. I was working at Toyota headquarters in Los Angeles and I had an issue and then I actually had enough cash flow built up to live off of. So I decided to take the risk, but it wasn't a plan that I had, honestly, because most people have a, a plan, which I did not. So there's that too. Thank you very much, Jeremy. We are grateful to you for being here today. And as I said, Jeremy will be around for questions um, the rest of the day. So thank you very much, Jeremy. There's a little token of our appreciation and a birthday gift for your son since you uh, missed his birthday to come here. We really appreciate that. So thank you, Jeremy. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto, to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return. Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at visor.co. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Investing in Private Syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy to read book, chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor. If you are a passive investor, you gotta read this book. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 
This show was copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.